turn in your Bible to Esther chapter 9, Esther, book of the Old Testament that we uh, have been looking at and are finishing up this morning. Uh, we're going to f- finish with Esther chapters 9 and 10. <clears throat> so let us uh, prepare our hearts for the reading of God's Word. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Puratha, Adaliah, Eradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Eridai, and Vazatha, the ten sons of Haman, of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. The number of those killed in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the 10 sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, Give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be impaled on poles. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they impaled the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa three hundred men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th, they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th, They rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. This is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of feasting and joy, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy 
and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pure, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued orders, written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be impaled on poles. Therefore, these days were called Purim, from the word pure. Because of everything in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every, t- every year in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family, and in every province, and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in all the 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance to establish these days of Purim at their designated times as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them and as they had established for themselves and the descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. And all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. This is the word of God. There's two ideas in this passage that we're going to consider this morning, the ideas of victory and the ideas of celebration. And uh, the previous uh, chapter ended with the situation in which both of those things were present in some limited or provisional sense, uh, awaiting the full realization of them. So uh, if you recall, victory in chapter 8 had been secured uh, in some sense, right? That the fatal blow against the preeminent and most powerful ringleader enemy of the Jews, Haman, had been dealt And the edict of life that would uh, empower the people to uh, have victory over that edict of death that had previously come forth had been issued forth. Victory in that important sense had been secured. But it hadn't yet been fully realized, right? And so there was still... uh, 
enemies against God's people remaining. And there was still a battle for God's people to be fought. But now they could fight in the context of victory and power with the authority of this new decree behind them to overcome Haman's decree of death. And so uh, we're going to come back to that idea, but let's just sort of step back into our chapter here uh, and see what's happening. Um, Apparently, Haman and his edict of destruction against the Jewish people had either stirred up or tapped into, or both probably most likely, uh, stirred up and tapped into anti-Jewish sentiment throughout the empire. And uh, we see that even though Haman has been removed from the picture, the lingering effects of his hatred against God's people were still there. And so in chapter 9, we see that still many people variously described as uh, enemies of the Jews. If you heard these phrases as I was reading, enemies of the Jews, those who hated the Jews, and including we see the 10 of Haman's sons. Uh, and so all these people, whether uh, biological or not, were all sort of sons of Haman in the sense of following in his footsteps of hatred and enmity towards God's people. An enmity, which we considered weeks ago, has uh, persisted, (laughs) which has entered into the world at the very beginning and will persist against God's people until the end of history, until Jesus returns. And now in Esther chapter 9, now we see uh, God's people responding to that enmity, right? And the chapter... want to take a minute to say that Esther chapter 9 has uh, disturbed some people <laughs> throughout uh, its history of being read and, uh, tr- and attempts to understand and interpret it. And maybe as I was reading, maybe you sensed some of the reasons for that, right? It's uh, violent and it's uh, bloody and it, it particularly has... Um, troubled people because a superficial reading of it, I think, can lend some people to feel like uh, oppressed have become oppressors, right? Those uh, persecuted previously have now become persecutors. And uh, especially when Esther asked for a second day of of warfare uh, in the city of Susa, Uh, That seems to reinforce that idea, but we should, let's take a step back and, you know, understand, step into the story, understand it uh, on its own terms. We need to remember that in chapter 8, it was an edict specifically legislating self-defense. So it authorized and empowered and gave the Jewish people the um, government sanction and right to defend themselves against the attacks of the enemy prompted by the prior decree, as you recall. And, uh, and so it was limited to that. It was not uh, a blank slate and full and free license to just go around uh, slaughtering people. You know, it was limited to self-defense against those who would initiate violence against them. That's important to remember, and we should then 
read the phrases we read and understand the events we see in chapter 9, not in the way that's contradictory to that, but in a way that's consistent with that principle. And so um, the key to all that, I think, we see in in verse 2. The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. Right, And so everything else we should be read should be understood in terms of self-defense and even uh, another detail that we see in this chapter that's repeated in verse 10 and 15. It tells us they took no plunder. And that's probably trying to tap into the imagery of holy war in which it was specifically uh, God's people uh, appointed as instruments of his hand of judgment against sinful nations, not something they were doing on their own account for their own sakes in order to gain from. And so this reminder that they took no plunder is a reminder that this uh, warfare here in Esther chapter 9 was not a matter of personal vengeance or uh, something through which they were seeking to gain and benefit personally from, but it was simply self-defense for their survival. Uh, the, and uh, in verse 5, we read a curious phrase. It says, they did all they, all they pleased to those who hated them. But again, we should understand that consistently with this principle of self-defense and uh, that probably this phrase, all they pleased, is simply a a point about the authority which they've been granted by the government, uh, uh, by the, the, the Persian Empire, whereas previously they stood powerless and helpless against their enemies. Now they had been empowered and authorized to do all that was necessary for their defense. And so that's probably how we should understand that phrase, all they pleased, is that they had power and authority to defend themselves. And when we read of Esther's request then for a second day of this edict to be carried out in the city of of Susa, instead of understanding, again, we shouldn't jump to the conclusion that that's just some you know, bloodthirsty, uh, needless request, uh, some vengeful spirit, Uh, but rather, I think we should understand that as her uh, understanding or awareness that there was still some continued threat beyond the first day, and that the need for self-defense had not fully passed yet. Now, as we've considered before, it's not necessary that we interpret Esther's actions as uh, morally upright there. But I do think in this situation, it's more um, consistent with what's happened and what's happening in the story. And all of that, then, especially Esther's request, then becomes a important uh, detail for what the remainder of the chapter becomes about, as we'll see, which is uh, the celebration of Purim uh, and uh, the, the, the uh, dealing with the two different days in which of it was celebrated. And we'll consider that in a minute. But all that to say, let's uh, back up again then. Here's the big picture of what's happening. The situation ending in chapter 8 was in some sense victory already accomplished. 
but in some sense, victory not yet fully realized yet. Right? The previous situation in chapter 8 was that victory had been secured by this new edict, but it had not been carried out and accomplished and realized in its fullest and final sense yet. The the fatal uh, death blow against the preeminent enemy, Haman, had been dealt, but enemies still remained and lingered, and Enmity still remained, and enmity still confronted the people of God, and so they still had a battle to be fought. And it's clear in chapter 9, that Esther, in Esther chapter 9, that it's God who gives them the victory, but that they still have a role to play in it. They still have to take up arms for battle, but it's God who is the one who gives them the favor And the victory. It's God who is the one who has been up to this point through ordinary events working behind behind the scenes, so to speak, uh, to lead them into their deliverance. But they still have a role to play in it, right? And in uh, verse 1, we read this phrase, the tables were turned. And that's where that I used that phrase in the sermon last week. I didn't you know, that actually comes from the, the book of Esther here. And there's uh, other phrases like it in the chapter to signify this great reversal that has happened. But even the way it's stated is uh, curious and consistent with the message and the pattern of the book of Esther, right? The narrator could say, God turned the tables. <laughs> but he doesn't. He uses the passive voice, the tables were turned. And remember, this is all part of the narrator's point, where in in the book of Esther, God remains unmentioned altogether, hidden behind the scenes. And the purpose of that, I, I believe, and most interpreters believe, that is purposeful, to reflect the reality of life that it sometimes feels as though God is absent But even in those times, and especially in those times, that it feels as though God is absent. God is nevertheless present, and God is nevertheless working for the good of and on behalf of his people. And that's, there have been plenty of hints throughout the book that that is in fact the narrator's perspective on reality. That is the perspective of faith on reality. And we see more hints uh, in this chapter, this phrase uh, that we already looked at uh, in verse 5, they did as they pleased. We see the same phrase in uh, the book we just looked at, Nehemiah chapter 9, which is describing the conquest of the promised land, the land of Canaan, back in in, uh, the book of Joshua. And there's certainly no question in that context who's doing the delivering, right? (laughs) Who's the one securing and achieving the victory on behalf of his people? So even though it's not specifically mentioned here, the, the idea is that here again, it's God securing the victory and accomplishing the victory on behalf of his people. Second, this phrase, the fear of Mordecai, is given as the, in verse 3 of chapter 9, the reason that the Persian government officials helped the Jewish people, that the fear of Mordecai uh, came upon them and um, seized them. 
And this is a same phrase that we read in Genesis chapter 31, uh, the fear of Isaac, which in that context is a reference to God. And so there seems to be this allusion to God's presence to give Mordecai this favor uh, to, to him and the Jewish people, and that maybe even there was some sense that there was, uh, that these people saw some unseen force at work, working on behalf of these people. And finally, the very name of Purim itself comes from uh, Haman, back in chapter 3, casting the lot, the Hebrew word we're told there is pure, whereas Haman casts that lot reflecting his belief in uh, his, his pagan belief in false gods. God's people know that history is ultimately governed by the one true and living God. And neither false gods, nor fate, nor chance, nor even human will has the final say in things, but God's eternal will. God who guides things along his path and plan according to what, uh, according to his purpose in working for the good of his chosen people. And so God has given them victory. This victory comes from God, even though he's unmentioned in it. It's clearly God giving them the favor, God uh, giving them the victory, but they still have a battle to fight, Right? And isn't this somewhat analogous, then, to our situation now in Christ, right? Victory has been accomplished. Victory has been declared. Victory has been secured for us. Victory has been promised to us, but it's not yet fully realized yet, right? On the cross, Jesus felt, dealt the fatal death blow against sin, death, and Satan. But those things still rage against God's people, right? And there is still a battle to be fought. In the cross of Jesus, the decisive victory was secured. And in Jesus' return, the final and full victory will be fully realized. But until that day... And this day, until then, the final victory hasn't been fully realized, and so there remains a battle to be fought in which there is a bitter struggle. And though we are hard-pressed and at times feel less than victorious, nevertheless, we, too, fight in the hope of victory achieved and assured and certain. We fight in the promise that one day victory will be fully realized. That's a certainty that we believe that informs how we struggle and persevere and press on right now. And so we don't give up in the struggle, but we continuously look to God for the strength because now, just as then, it's God who sustains us and strengthens us and empowers us to fight the good fight of the faith, right? We still have a role to play, but it's God who gives us the strength, and we are called to fight. 
We are called to struggle not against flesh and blood and not with the weapons of warfare, but against the spiritual powers of this world, a spiritual battle against sin and Satan, against their deceptions, against their temptations, against their influences. And our weapons are the means of grace which God gives us for our strengthening and growth. And our weapons are not the weapons of warfare against our enemies in this world, but the weapons of preaching the gospel of salvation and demonstrating the gospel through acts of love. And we now, too, fight in the context of victory with the power of Christ's resurrection in us, strengthened by the presence of the Holy Spirit in us and held fast to the very end by the love of God. And so, just how do we apply this then Let me encourage us to ask ourselves, each individually, where are we in that battle? What is our outlook on that battle? And to what degree are we persevering and pressing on in that battle? Maybe you've long forgotten that there is even a battle raging at all. And... When that happens, we are all the more susceptible to the deception of sin that hardens our heart, right? Maybe we've forgotten that there is, in fact, a battle that is spiritual and invisible to sight, but that there is, nevertheless, a spiritual reality behind the physical realities of this world that we can see with our eyes. And so... The danger, then, is to live with a peacetime mentality characterized by maybe unurgent and unearnest prayers and comfortable compromise with sin and apathy in our pursuit of Christ. You know, a peacetime mentality is fine if it's peacetime. (laughs) But if there's a battle raging, it's very dangerous, deadly, in fact. And there is a battle raging for your soul. And we need to wake up to that and remember that and take up the, the call of Christ to fight the good fight of the faith in the strength of the Spirit of God. Maybe we've forgotten that there is a battle raging. Maybe we've forgotten that we have a role to play in that battle. That God certainly is the one who gives us the strength and the victory. But just like in Esther chapter 9, nevertheless, we need to take up the fight, right? We have to take up arms, different ones as I mentioned. But nevertheless, uh, we are called to take up the means of grace that God gives us uh, for our growth, for our sanctification, for our perseverance in the faith. Prayer meditation upon and living out of God's word, uh, faith-filled worship and participation in the sacraments which God gives us, loving fellowship with believers in the family of God. All these things are uh, the, the weapons of warfare that God gives us to strengthen us in that struggle against sin. Maybe we've long forgotten that we have a role to play in this battle, or maybe we're all too aware of the battle 
but we've become all too discouraged in it. We feel overwhelmed, overcome, powerless in the struggle against sin. We feel plagued and weighed down by unwanted but persistent and powerful doubts in our minds and hearts. We feel beaten down by the persecution or ridicule or hatred from those around us who don't believe. And maybe in all of that, we feel that God is absent. But wherever you are, I read this quote and I just wanted to to read it. Wherever you are in that, hear these words. Don't give up. Struggle on. Pray on. Love on. Keep on. And remember, sin and Satan will not win. Jesus has already won. Our enemy is not going to give up until that final day. And so we are called to struggle on in the strength that Christ provides. Even when he seems absent in this world, we can trust and believe the promise of faith that he is present, that he is working in our lives. So struggle on until that day when battle gives way to rest. And in the book of Esther, we see in verse Chapter 9, verse 17 and 18, we see this idea of resting after the battle was done. And in, in another place, we see this idea of getting relief from their enemies. And this is reminiscent of, again, the conquest of the promised land when the, the result of that was that God gave them rest on every side from their enemies, right? And for the new covenant people of God, for us, that rest still lies ahead. And that's what we press on un- unto. And, uh, you know, Hebrews 4 reminds us that that promised land rest was only a, a pointer, only a shadow to the true eternal rest that awaited God's people, which we find through Christ and by faith. And he says in Hebrews chapter 4 that if Joshua had truly given them that rest, then God would not have spoken later about another day, but God does speak about another day. So that there remains, he writes, then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. It remains for us to enter into it ahead, future, yet unrealized. And we now in this life struggle and uh, fight in our, in our wilderness wandering experience, but we do it with the strength of God and the presence of Christ with us until that day when we enter into that eternal rest and rest from all our labors and struggles in this life, when provisional, uh, when, when, when victory is fully realized. And the second thing we see in this, in these chapters of victory, the second thing is celebration. And just like with victory, We saw celebration and joy and feasting occur in chapter 8, but it was a sort of a provisional celebration, right? It wasn't yet fully realized because even though the victory had been secured, the victory hadn't been fully realized yet. And so these last uh, 
chapters then of Esther, part of the purpose of them, we see, is to establish this celebration of Purim, which was a day of celebration and joy and feasting, and to explain the reason why it came to be celebrated on two different days in Susa and then in the rest of the, the places. Um, and then also to confirm this celebration of Purim as a lasting practice amongst God's people, the Jewish people. And we see the emphasis of it and it being fasting, or excuse me, feasting and joy in verses 17 and 18. And uh, again in verse 22, joy, celebration, feasting, generosity. And we see then it's established and confirmed as a lasting thing to be observed through these letters that, that Esther wrote towards that purpose. The end of chapter 8 was celebration, but it was provisional, partial. But now we see there in the context of Esther's story, a full and enduring celebration. Because God's people need to remember what God has done, right? God's people need to remember what God has done. Because the gospel is the most amazing wonderful, awe-inspiring, greatest story, greatest news you could ever hear or hope to hear in all this life. And God's people need to remember that and to remind themselves of that and to work it deeper into our minds and hearts and souls so that becomes more and more the abiding source of our joy and hope in this life. But it's, it's easy to forget, isn't it? <laughs> it's easy to forget. It's easy to grow accustomed and then apathetic towards something. It's easy to forget, but God calls us to remember. And God gave them this, uh, and in, in his people in the Old Covenant, many celebrations and ordinances to remember. This one we read about here. He gave them circumcision to remember his promise. He gave them Passover to remember his great act of deliverance. He gave them many other feasts and celebrations. And God, likewise, in the new covenant, gives his people things by which to remember the great things that he's done, right? The sacrament of baptism to remember his promise. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper to remember his deliverance. And even in the church calendar, we've uh, added things, uh, you know, that I don't believe are obligatory, but nevertheless helpful, like what's coming up, the celebration of Easter, or what we recently observed, the celebration of Advent and Christmas. But every Sunday is our celebratory day of remembrance, right? The first day of week, the week of Jesus' resurrection and subsequent resurrection appearances, the Lord's Day, in which Jesus, by his resurrection, declared the victory over sin and death and promised his return when he would come and usher it all into its greatest point of realization and completion by establishing his new heavens and new earth, where all provisional celebration of God's people becomes 
perfectly and fully and, endure, and eternally enduring. Where our celebration and joy now that is still mixed with lament and sadness and tears and longing, one day those things all give way to joy and gladness and celebration in the presence of God, in the light of his presence and the light of his truth forever. And in this sacrament, we have an opportunity to celebrate. And I've always found it helpful to consider this sacrament in three uh, sort of uh, directions in which it calls us to look. We look to the past, backwards. We look to to, uh, Jesus' work on the cross for us, by which he laid down his life and died and suffered the wrath of God for our sins so that we could be forgiven and accepted by God when Jesus dealt the death blow. But we still struggle because enemies still rage, right? But we also look to the present where we believe, uh, especially in this sacrament, that Jesus is with us by his Spirit. He's present with us in a special way to pledge to us that it's his presence in our hearts that nourishes us spiritually. And it's his presence in us that strengthens us to press on in the fight. But we also look to the future, where one day he will come again and usher us into that new heavens and new earth where we will feast with him in his presence, the true king, right? In the last bit of Esther, chapter 10, we see uh, references to two people who are set in contrast to one another, right? We see the, the anti-king in Xerxes, who used his power for self-exaltation at the expense of others. But then we see a pointer to the true king in Mordecai, who in a small way represented the true king to come, who sought the good and welfare not of himself, but we, we read of his people, right? Doesn't that point our minds and hearts to Jesus? The true king who had all power and authority, but who did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Our God, we give you thanks for the victory which is ours in Christ. We give you thanks for the presence of Christ with us even now to nourish us and strengthen us in our souls, to give us the strength to press on in that fight until Jesus comes back. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.